watch the ball drop last night or anything. I can't remember the last time I stayed up to watch the ball drop. Yeah. It's a big deal with my younger kids. I could, I could not care less. I don't remember last time I was up till midnight on New Year's Eve either. I love how you say the word y'all, but you do say that correctly. Y'all? No. You, I said I don't care to or I don't mind to, but you just said it the right way. Oh. The proper way. There is a proper way to say that. Yeah, well, I didn't know that until I worked with a lady from New Jersey who came down and she said, do I want to go do something? I was like, yeah, I don't care to. She was like, you don't have to be rude. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she was like, you don't care to, like you don't want to. And I was like, no, that means I don't mind. And she was yeah. like, what? When you move, you learn all your goofy colloquialisms. When I was in college at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, everyone knew I was from Cincinnati. And I thought, we, we don't have an accent in Cincinnati. And they said, yeah, but when you, you don't say excuse me or beg your pardon, you say please. If you don't understand something, yeah, that's why I grew up. Like, if you don't understand, please, please. I've learned not to say that because people have no idea what you mean when yeah, you say I that. People would say, please what? Yeah, that's... I mean... Please say what you just said again. Huh. But people are like, yeah, he's from Cincinnati. <laughs> when I moved down here from Maryland, um, yeah, it was in the wintertime, and the lady I'm running from said goodbye to me. It's like, you know, the context she used it, it's like, I just, I gave her this, like, what are you talking about? And it's like they call a hat a toboggan. Yeah, and buggies. And and yeah, the, yeah. the buggy's not a big issue, but it's like, why are you talking about a sled? Yeah. What? A sled. A toboggan is a sled. Really? It's a wooden yeah. sled with a curved front. Huh. There are so many <clears throat> expressions we use that we don't even realize that they're they're strange because we're so used to them. Yeah. Um, like, uh, yeah, we're, we're their guinea pigs. Yeah. We know exactly what that means, don't we? Mm-hmm. I remember hearing a really great story of Christian was in Russia preaching through an interpreter. <clears throat> and he was flowing along and he talked about, yeah, the, our, our government's been using us as a bunch of guinea pigs. And this Russian interpreter goes, eh. How do you interpret that? And then someone in the audience starts talking to him in Russian, like trying to figure out what the American guy just said. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And then he finally says something and everyone in the whole audience goes, Oh. <laughs> and later after the lecture, the Christian guy asked, says to the interpreter, what did you, how did you explain um, what I was talking about? He said, they didn't know what you meant by, by guinea pig, but the expression I used that they did understand was pig for science. Oh, oh that's smart. <laughs> yeah, a pig for science. And everyone, oh, okay, we see what he's saying. <laughs> Remember looking, even like in the New Testament, there's all kinds of idioms. I remember like doing translation work when I was in, taking Greek, and it's like you start going word by word, let this sink deeply into, and it's like into your ears. And it's basically just a, an old way of saying, listen carefully to me. Yeah. Let this sink into your ears. But it's like there's the Greek verb for sink. I'm like, let this sink? Yeah. Remember like translating it going, what in the world but there's so many weird yeah i look up certain phrases sometimes especially when different translations have different words Mm -hmm. so i try to look google but you know um it helps but anyway i look at it i'm like oh okay yeah okay 
Another thing, another one. The early bird gets the worm. Mm -hmm. We use that in English. In German, they say the early morning hours have gold in their mouths. <laughs> and we hear that and go, what is that talking about? But yeah, the Bible's got all kinds of stuff like that in it. But anyway, all right, let's, let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for seeing us through 2022. We pray 2023 would be a great year for your church, a great year for holiness, uh, a great year to live our lives uh, free from fear and anxiety and worry, uh, to have full confidence and trust in your grace and your mercy, your love and your kindness. We thank you that you have chosen to glorify your grace uh, in pitying us in our sin. And we pray that you would bless us now as we uh, read through some more of the Westminster Confession, help us understand the great teachings of Scripture, and I pray you bless our uh, discussion to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at page um, 41. We're on point number eight on the section of Christ the Mediator. <clears throat> really important section here of Christ the Mediator. Point number eight. To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption... He doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Okay, so Jesus comes into the world. He has a very specific mission that he's been given. And that mission is, of all that the Father gave him, he will lose none. Remember, we saw that in John chapter 6. He tells his hearers, that's why I came into the world. Uh, to do my, not my own will, I'm not on a, a rogue mission, but to do exactly what I was commissioned by my Father to do. And that mission is, of everyone that he gave me, I will not lose any of them. I will achieve their salvation. And at a point in time, uh, those individuals will be effectually called and joined to Jesus Christ. And what I have done at the cross and in my life will be communicated to them before they die. Okay, so it's, it's God's show and God's mission. He makes use of us in our evangelistic work, in our preaching and teaching. But at the end of the day, it's only God uh, who's going to receive the glory for our salvation. Because you can take someone who is the most brilliant orator and speaker uh, who can answer every question and who has perfect theology and has the whole Bible memorized, that individual cannot make a dead sinner alive in Christ. Only God, by his supernatural grace, is able to do that. So I love hearing the stories of how some of the greatest churchmen and theologians in church history were converted um, because often there's, there's like nothing glorious about it at all. You know how Charles Spurgeon came to Christ? He, he actually was... It was terrible weather, terrible storm, driving rain, and he was trying to get to his church, uh, as I understand the story, and there was a, a little Methodist church nearby, and the, the weather was so bad, he just ducked into that church, and he said the guy, the guy that, was, that stood up and read the passage, he said the guy was a blithering idiot. He's like he could hardly read, he was stumbling through the whole thing, but God used that reading of scripture to, to convert him. Right there in that moment, and I just think that is, that is, I just love that because God always gets the glory for it. You know, it doesn't matter uh, how eloquent the preacher is. It doesn't matter um, how great of a speaker he might be. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. It's not the trappings. It's not the music. It's not um, how, how cool or uncool or, or anything like that. 
It's the power of God working through his word that does it every time. And so anytime you see people converted or saved or anything like that, it's always to be given, the glory is to be given to God and no other. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, just to comment on that because I'm a little bit obsessed with Spurgeon. Um, a lot of people say, obviously, it's not proven, and Spurgeon himself never said it, but he wasn't that determined to get to his church in the rain because it was him going to church because he was so dedicated. That's right. It was because that's what you did. Yeah, everybody went to church right now. You go to church. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, when I was a, a youth minister for nine months in Mississippi, I did a, a series of lessons for this youth group, and I was talking to them about uh, atheism. <clears throat> and I, I asked them, "Do you guys have any like classmates that are like real hardcore atheists?" And they all looked at each other like, "No." Really? Do you guys know anyone that's an unbeliever? No. Everybody goes to church. Everybody goes to church down Where here are you at? in Mississippi, oh, in Pearl, Mississippi. We're yeah. Yeah, in the deep south, everybody goes to church, and everybody thinks they're a Christian. And that was one of the challenges down there. Is um, I, I don't, I, I didn't get the impression that a number of those kids uh, were, were believers. Those people, yeah. are like what God calls me to. Yeah, they're they're really hard to to advance. I remember I asked that group. There were twelve of them that would come pretty much every Wednesday. Um, would you guys still go to church if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And ten of them said they would. They would still go to church. And only two of them said, well, if he didn't rise from the dead, then none of this stuff's true, is it? Oh, it's like, wow. exactly. Good but they all said, no, 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 we should still go to church, even if, even if it's false. I'm like, I wouldn't go to church if I didn't think it was true. <laughs> You'd stay home, sleep in, and watch football or something. But, yeah. No, okay. I mean, you said it, it's harder to evangelize in areas like that. I yeah. Mean, I would witness, the further north you go, the more liberal it is. Mm-hmm. And, my thoughts, it's easier to witness up there than it is areas that would profess to be the Bible Belt. Right. Which is why I love how you do your booths and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a separate question, because I was reading through um, chapter 3 mm-hmm. of the Confession this morning. I mean, I, there's so much that I see that all this in the confessions are so interrelated. Oh, yeah. You almost mm-hmm. can't separate can't. one part from another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it, you know, how it ta- um, I can't remember what it was, but how um, you were saying that it's a work of God, and yet in chapter 3, it talks about how it's a work of God. Mm-hmm. And his, you know? in the section, that's the chapter on decrees, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're all interrelated. You make one error, you make an error upstream in your theology, it will trickle down into everything else. Let, let, just think about this for a moment. One error I've been confronted with um, recently is just the, the whole issue of the inspiration and the authority of the Bible. And we, believe, we believe the Bible is inspired by God, is breathed forth by God, and that there are no errors in it of any kind whatsoever because God is sovereign. Yeah. Because he has decrees, because he has determined to give us an error, a, a text that doesn't have any errors on it. Now, the Arminians, you guys know the Arminians do not believe that God is sovereign. Uh, they think that man, in the final analysis, is ultimately free. He can act independently of what God has decreed. And man is, is the ultimate moving force, really, in the whole universe. Historically, the Arminians never tried to defend that the Bible has no errors on it. And I always thought, why, didn't they, why would they not even try to do that? Because they can't. 
If you don't believe God is sovereign, how can he override the human will and stop errors from coming into Scripture? I thought, isn't that amazing? I remember thinking historically, who did the fundamentalists call upon to defend the inerrancy of Scripture? It was us Calvinists. It was B.B. Warfield. Because the Arminians don't even try. Because if your system says man must be free and he, he can't be under the overarching sovereign providence of God, then He's you can't violate your free will. That's right. Then, then God would not be able to produce an inerrant text for us. And so they don't even bother to try. And I remember learning about that, uh, reading some other theological works going, man, they, did, they didn't even try. But it makes sense. You make that error up in your theology here, it trickles down into all this other stuff too. You also notice a lot of denominations that believe that way that are earning and that's why they don't read their Bibles yeah. by practice. It's just on Sundays. Right. I, I know a girl that I talked to at work. She says she's a backslidden Christian. But anyway, um, I've been witnessing her and talking to her, and I asked her about her Bible, and she was like, oh, I, I literally bring it on Sundays. Um, she was like, I don't even know the books, but I have a marker on it so I can open it while they read the Scripture, and then I don't touch it again. Yeah, and I would encourage you all, always remember this, please. When you think about the Bible and the, what view of it we should hold in terms of its authority, what, what historical figure held the highest conceivable view of Scripture? Jesus Christ. Yes. What did Jesus believe in? That's a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> what historical figure, yeah, held the highest view possible? Jesus did. Jesus believed in the literal historical Adam and Eve, the flood, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, all of it. And every time he quotes scripture, he says, this is what God has said. And so I've always said, okay, Lord, if you can give me a good reason to think you're smarter than Jesus, yeah, I'm, cert- I'm certainly willing to hear what you have to say, but I promise you, I'm going to go with his view of, of scripture over yours um, every day of the week. Well, what I challenged you is I said, um, you say you're a backslidden Christian, and I understand that means that you want to not be backslidden, and we'll talk about that another time. I said, but how do you know the God that you worship and the cross that you say that you have faith in if you don't know about him? And how do you know about him? So. You can't, yeah, apart from divine revelation. So, yeah. Other question okay. I would ask, if you don't read scripture to know who Jesus is, what is the difference between the Jesus you believe in and the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witness mm-hmm. or Christian science or any other cult? What is the difference between your Jesus and theirs? There's not. Jesus is an idol. Their Jesus is an idol. Yeah. Everybody has theology, and everybody everybody does systematic theology. Everybody does. But some people don't do it very well. And and those who say, I just don't get into all that that doctrine, all that theology stuff, uh, they actually do. It's just they'll have contradictions and inconsistencies in their their thinking. Okay, chapter 9 of Free Will. So what this chapter is about is just about the will of man, okay, and it's four different states. There's four different conditions of the human will throughout human history. There's man before the fall happens, okay, that's Adam and Eve before the fall. There's man after the fall. There's man after the fall, but after he's born again, that's the third one. And then there's man in heaven, okay? So there's four different states of man's will. Okay, and if you, as long as you keep bear that in mind, all, we had to memorize these when I was in seminary. And it's thoroughly biblical, and it's spot on the money. It's very, very helpful. Okay, so let, let's go through this. God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. Okay, so what that's saying is that every human being has a will. 
So often people will say, well, you guys don't believe we have wills. No, I do believe we have a will. Everything I've ever done in my life, I have done by my own freedom, by my own will, and I will always act in accordance with my greatest desire. And before God made me born again, I had no desire to follow Christ. <laughs> None. And I had only a desire to sin and to pursue sin, which I did until God changed me. Okay, so that, that's the thing. You, you guys don't think we have wills. Yes, we do have wills. Everything that we do is by our will. Man has his will, he lives by his will, and acts by his will. But the, the issue is, what does the fall do to man's will? What is regeneration, the new birth, what does that do to our will? And then what does glorification in heaven, what does that do to our will? Okay, so let's look at these. But number two. Man, so this is before the fall, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God but yet mutably, that, that means changeably, so that he might fall from it. Okay, so man, before he sinned, had the ability to choose good or evil. He could choose one or the other. Adam, Adam before the fall, could have chosen to obey, could have chosen to disobey. And of course, sadly, he chose to disobey. Okay, so that's man in his estate of, of innocency before the fall. So here, now look at point three. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Now, why, why do they put that in there like that? Because there are so many passages that speak of man not being able. Remember Jesus in John six forty four: No man is able to come to me. Okay, Jesus said that to his, uh, uh, to his hearers there. No one is able to unless God draws him. Okay? Man is not able to do that which is spiritually pleasing to God. Man is not able to understand the things of the, of the Spirit of God. Okay? It's not that he just won't, it's that he can't. It's like trying to explain the colors of a rainbow to a blind man. You know, there's just no frame of reference. The, the blind man cannot conceive of the distinction between green and blue or red uh, because he's blind. Okay? All right. So as a natural man, that means someone who's not born again yet, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Okay. Now, one of the reasons they put that last phrase in there or to prepare himself is because that's one of the things that, that Roman Catholicism said, man, man can prepare himself uh, to be saved. And the reformers said, no, he can't. <laughs> what does that mean prepared? I, I don't know. It's just, their, it's their particular version of, um, semi-Pelagianism, the ancient her- that man has this, these abilities. See, but that, that's the thing that scripture, I'm sorry? The natural. Yes, yeah. Now, they would always say, well, he's, he's assisted by grace, and grace makes it possible for him to do, to do this or that. But that's one thing in scripture that you just don't see anywhere. Grace never makes things possible. It always affects and accomplishes them. So that's one of the, the real huge differences between like you guys have heard of Augustine and Pelagius you ever heard of that whole debate in church history the Augustinian Pelagian controversy it's one of the most important debates that ever happened in church history Augustine way back in the 400s and and the 500s and there was a British monk named Pelagius and Pelagius said if you preach grace like this everybody's going to sin all the time and so you can't do that and Adam, Adam didn't ruin the human race he only set a bad example for us but Jesus sets a better example, and so we're supposed to follow Jesus' example, and that's how we get to heaven. And Augustine said, no, 
Augustine, looking at scripture, said man is entirely unable to do anything to save himself. And he was one of the, one of the first looking at Paul to say God is the one who chooses who he's going to save. God goes after them and then God saves them. And he does it by his almighty power. So Augustinianism, grace, defeated this idea of works righteousness. But then you had this middle position that, that creeps in where they say, okay, yeah, you're right. Man could use some help. And grace, grace makes it possible for man to then save himself. Okay, and, and the response of the Reformed churches and even to the ancient church in the 6th century was, no, that's not true either. God has to do all the saving. Grace doesn't just make it possible for us to save ourselves. Grace saves us. Okay, God doesn't make salvation a theoretical possibility. God actually saves sinners. Okay, and Augustine, of course, if you know anything about his life, he understood that really well. Because that guy was a real bad guy before he came to Christ. Y'all know his story, like Augustine. Augustine, um, he was a real ruffian. Um, there's some really interesting stories about, about his life. He's one of the most important Christian writers in the first thousand years of, of church history. But he actually joined a cult uh, when he was 17 years old. His mother was a devout Christian, and his father was a, was a pagan. But when he was 17 years old, the, one of the great, greatest stories, he's sitting down at dinner with his mother, and he tells her, I've joined the, I've joined the Manichaean cult. You know what she did? She jumped over the table and attacked him. And literally threw him out of her house. Is that why he talks about the prayers of his mother? Yes. Okay. That that, she's famous. I just got the chills thinking about her. Ma, her name was Monica. Yeah. She prayed so hard for his salvation for the next, like, 16 or 17 years. And he doesn't become a Christian until he's, like, 32 years old. Really? Yeah, he was in his 30s. Yeah. He was in his 30s. And it was, it was such a radical change because he had been a womanizer. He had a child out of wedlock that, that died when he was like 16 years old. But he, had, he was violent. He was a thief. And he was promiscuous. But when he got saved, it was like one of the most radical transformations I've ever read anything about. He was like so devout and so dedicated. He spent the rest of his life writing and preaching and uh, defending the gospel of God's grace. He understood it was God's grace that had saved him. He, he knew it was. Um, it wasn't a doubt about it. The idea that God's grace made it possible for him to save himself, there's no way he was going to believe that. Because not only does scripture not teach that, but his own experience. He was fighting against God his whole life. One of his most famous lines from his Confessions, the, the book, if you've never read the Confessions of Augustine, you should read it. It's, it. The whole book is a prayer. It's him praying and thanking God for his salvation. But one of the most famous lines in it, he says, Lord, sanctify me but not yet because he wants to keep sinning. He even says he knew, he knew the gospel was true and he knew the Christianity was true for an entire year before he finally got baptized and joined the church. Cause he, he wanted to keep sinning. So he understood it was God's grace alone. Okay. So, so that's point number three there. Man's not able to do anything. Once he falls into sin, he's not able to, um, to do anything towards his own spiritual good. Okay. Point number four. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. 
So let's take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Uh, I got an email. I got an email from a stranger somewhere in the U.S. Uh, this week saying, I just feel like I sin too much and there's no way that God can still love me. And people send me emails like that all the time. It's just, I'm, I have done so much that's wrong. I feel like God is just discarding me or whatever. And I, I'm too bad. I'm too evil. And my response is always, welcome to the Christian life. <laughs> um, we all feel like that. I felt like that this week. Okay? What, and what does that sense of wretchedness do? It keeps me clinging to Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's all I've got is the blood and righteousness of Christ. So look at Romans chapter 7. I love the fact that Paul... That was. This is what characterized his own life. And wouldn't you think that Paul is a pretty godly fella, pretty pretty good Christian man? Look at what he says in verse uh, fourteen of Romans seven. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. I cannot tell you how many times I have resolved. Resolved. I'm going to read 15 chapters of the Bible a day from now until the day I die. Okay. Who, who, what historical figure said that had like had 70 resolutions that he was going, Jonathan Edwards, 70 resolutions of what he was going to do like every day for the rest of his life. And like one of his journal entries a few months after he wrote all those resolutions was, I feel cold and defeated now. (laughs) It's like, yeah, welcome. Welcome to the struggle. Who of us, if we're, I mean, who of us can really say this for ourselves? A wretched man that I am, I, I do, do what, as Paul said, yeah. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Yeah. Don't you feel like that? Like in your heart, you have the best of intentions. <laughs> like, I, Lord, I really do want to do all this good, and then I just don't do it. Or I do some of it, or, or do it half-heartedly, or, yeah. See verse 15, the last phrase of verse 15, what I hate that I do. Verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I love how he does that. He tries to distance himself from, him, from himself. It's like there's this sinful version of me that lives in here, and it's like he's always there, and he'll rear his ugly head occasionally, but it's kind of like, yeah, that's like the sinful old version of myself that still tries to live through me. Verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, meaning a principle, that evil is present with me. So if you're a Christian, have you ever noticed that? Evil's still there. It's still there. And it will try to tempt you and pull you away and make you think that, as, what's the point? Remember, what is it, Psalm 72? Surely I have washed my hands in vain. What's the point? You know, the wicked, they just have so much fun. They don't have the worries that I do. They don't have the burdens I do. Surely I have washed my hands in vain. Remember, how does he eventually comfort himself there in Psalm 72? Then I went to the sanctuary of God and understood their end, where they're going. And then I was fine. <laughs> So the psalm writers, I love that the psalms are therapeutic to the soul because these guys, they're upset about this, they're worried about this, and they talk themselves, they, they preach the truth to themselves, and then they're fine. I know that God is sovereign, he's on his throne, and that all will be well, uh, don't need to worry. 
Okay, look at um, verse 21. I find then a principle that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another principle or law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You see that word war? Are you guys, you have the ESV there, uh, Emma? Are you reading the ESV? Uh, what what the translation? New King James. Okay, good. You have the ESV? Mm-hmm. How does the ESV translate um, verse 23? But I see my members another law waging a war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. That, that's good. That dwells in my members. Yeah, waging war. You hear that? So when you're, once you're a Christian, when you're born again, sin doesn't stop. And I actually, I did a whole, when I preached through Romans, I learned so much from doing that series. Like I I learned more than I was able to share with the the church. But when you have peace with God, like once you're saved and God has justified you and your sins are all forgiven, you have peace with God. But now there's a war that starts with sin in your life. And you spend the rest of your life at war, waging war against everything that's still there that's wrong and contrary to the character of God and, um, that just doesn't stop in this life. Okay, look at verse 24. I love it. Here's the, here's the summary. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's Paul. This is Paul, the godly apostle. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And then the great triumphant um, verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? You cannot, if you're a believer and you're in Christ, you cannot be condemned. And you think, yeah, well, I've had so many people, you know, pastor, I sin. I sin so stubbornly sometimes. And my answer is, well, God pardons even more stubbornly than you sin. Because Jesus Christ's work is sufficient. Not only to atone for all your past sins before you were converted, but for all your Christian failures too. Okay, Jesus Christ died for the sins of Christians too. It's an important, important point there. Okay, we could just keep reading in Romans there. Maybe, maybe we should, but <laughs> Rom- Romans eight. Okay, so look back at point four there on page forty-four. Um, yeah, we will what's good, and and we also will what's evil. Sadly, and then point five: the will of of man is made perfectly and immutably. That means unchangeably. Free to good alone in the state of glory alone. Okay, so we will never be rid of evil desires until we're in heaven. And th- that's, one of the, that's one of the things I really look forward to. I, it's impossible for us to imagine having no desires except good ones. Isn't it? Like, what is that going to be like? To, ha- to be able to worship God and love him the way we're supposed to, the way we were created to? And there will be no contrary desires at all. None. I don't know what that will be like. It's pretty weird to think about it. But I had a guy tell me, tell me if you've ever heard this argument. Man has to be free because love is only meaningful if man has a free will. You ever heard that argument before? And my, my response to that is, so are you saying that in heaven, our love for God will mean nothing to him? Because we have no ability to choose anything contrary to loving him? Certainly not. 
plus God, the members of the Trinity, God the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and there's this inter-Trinitarian love. Do the members of the Trinity have the ability to hate each other? They can't. And yet, is that, does that make their love meaningless? Not having the power of contrary choice? It's such a lame argument. And yet, people are taken in by that. I've, I've been, I don't know how to answer this objection. I'm like, think about heaven. What are we going to be doing in heaven? We'll be loving God perfectly because we will not have the ability to do anything other than that. And that's going to be one of the most glorious parts about it. And that's what makes it all the more meaningful is that my entire nature will be devoted to God and to nothing else. Well, people also forget that love isn't just an emotion. You're Mm -hmm. commanded to love. Yeah. Sometimes it manifests itself as feelings, but, you know, especially when you get married and things like that, love's not always a feeling. It's a decision you make uh, to be self-giving and I'm going to love you uh, regardless. That's why you stand up in front of God and witnesses and make these oaths and swear to do this or that. Because when everybody's, you know, love-struck and starry-eyed, it's all, that's, that's the easy part. It's, the in love is easy. <laughs> yeah. It's when life, you know, pulls the rug out from under you and you really struggle and there's loss and there's pain and there's heartache. That's when, okay, yeah, we swore in front of God and witnesses. We're going to press forward here. What's that so. Paul Tripp book? Why did I get married? What, what, did, what did you expect or what whatever? What did you expect yeah. when you got married? Yeah. So before the fall, post-fall, mm-hmm. post-conversion, and then heaven? Yes. Those are the four states. Sorry. And there's cool Latin terms. I can't. I, I, might, I, I might still be able to say them. I don't remember. But, they were, but Augustine was the one that, that showed that from Scripture. Before the fall, man had the ability to choose the good or the evil. After the fall, he can't choose good anymore. He's only evil. After conversion, we can choose good and evil. And then after uh, heaven starts, then we, can, um, we will only desire good. Sorry, that makes okay. so much sense. And yeah, I'm not trying encouraging. to figure out this free will. And I've read Martin Luther's book and all this stuff. But that <laughs> seems like the key yeah. to, I get it. Yeah. That, this whole chapter comes right out of Augustine, Augustine's works, which, which he got from Scripture. He just, studying the Bible, was like, yeah, Adam, Adam could have done it. But after the fall, no one can do it. When grace happens... Now our wills are kind of divided. There's a desire for good, but there's also still a desire for evil. In heaven, there's no desire for evil at all. There's only a desire for good. So, isn't that helpful? Remember, when I took systematic theology in seminary, this is really helpful stuff because it summarizes what Scripture teaches about all this. Okay, point or chapter 10, we'll, we'll just uh, read the first paragraph here and discuss it just a little bit. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only... He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. How many of you have ever heard, you guys think that God drags people into the kingdom kicking and screaming? Ever heard that? I believe you. Really, yeah. I've heard that so many times. You think God forces people to do things against their will. No, he doesn't. God's never forced anyone to do anything. But when he changes that heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that new heart will desire to come to Christ. Okay, and willingly comes to Christ. All right. I've heard people say uh, he's making people robots. 
Would that, would that mean we're robots in heaven? No. Of course not. Okay, everyone turn quickly to Ezekiel 11. <clears throat> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the big, big prophets there. Ezekiel 11, great text of scripture. Yeah, look at verse um, 14 and following of Ezekiel 11. Great prophecy of the, of the new birth. <clears throat> Ezekiel eleven fourteen. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Yet far away from the Lord, this land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Now listen to verse 19 and following. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's one of the clearest statements of what effectual calling means. It's when God, by his own power, changes that heart. God reaches down from heaven and changes that heart, puts a new spirit in them, takes the stony heart out of their flesh, and gives them a heart of flesh so they walk in his ways. Now, does that sound at all to you like, well, God, God gives grace, and then that makes it possible for us to convert ourselves? That's what Augustine, and like through all the centuries, and, and the reformers looking at scripture said, there's nothing, God's grace doesn't make things possible. God's grace accomplishes this stuff. He's the one who changes our hearts. He's the one who comes and does this so that we then desire to follow him and have a desire for holiness and a desire to turn away from sin. And if he doesn't do that, no one is going to desire to, do, to follow him. Okay. My objection when I hear that is the fact that when I was saved, the very last thing I wanted was God. That was the <laughs> last thing on my mind. Yeah. Um, to be perfectly blunt, I'm sorry, but I was completely and totally trash drunk in a food sitting parking lot in Johnson City at 2 a.m. when God saved me. Mm. What? Yeah. Right? And I just committed a horrible sin, but the point is, I didn't even think of it as a sin, and then it's just, I know a lot of people don't have that, but to me, and I hated Reformed theology, me and Tom <laughs> screamed and argued about it. But anyway, in that moment, I was like, I, I didn't choose God. Mm. Right? And I thought I was a Christian, but there was no repentance. What is this? <laughs> I didn't choose God. I wasn't thinking about God. I wasn't emotionally moved to come to God. Like, he struck me like lightning and was like, boom. Yeah. So, yeah. That was my, okay, yes, God chooses us. I didn't make a decision for Christ. Yeah, I think a lot, yeah. a lot of times people initially think, well, I'm the one that repented and I... I believe. That's the way I thought. Oh, I didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> it was the last thing on my mind. <laughs> but then over time, as you study scripture more, and as you see the darkness of your own heart more and more, you start realizing, no, God 
intervened here and God, God did something to me. Even my, my dear father, you know, who's always chafed a little bit at the fact that I'm reformed. <laughs> but a few years ago, we were sitting at the table and I was like, Dad, your conversion story illustrates this really well. And he got, <laughs> he got all emotional on me because he was, he was a hostile agnostic after the Vietnam War. He wasn't saved until he was in his 30s too. My mom took me and my sister to church, you know, by herself for a while. And um, my mom just prayed and prayed and prayed for him for years and years. He didn't go to church for like 10 years. And they didn't have kids until they'd been married for like nine or 10 years. So I was like two years old when he got saved. But the story goes, he was, <clears throat> he had gone to church his whole life and then quit going after Vietnam. But then he started listening to these gospel albums. He went to church to hear a choir because my dad's into music and, and sings and stuff. Heard a great choir stuff and heard a really good sermon on forgiveness. Started listening to these gospel albums. And my mom said he was up all night long listening to these gospel albums. And then the next morning he was just sobbing. And, oh, you know, this, not everyone's testimonies are, are kind of dramatic like that. Some are, are much more gradual. I'm like, Dad, Thank God. God saved you. Yes. And, he's, and then he, he'll sit there and say, yeah, he really was coming after me. <laughs> Like, he did come after you, and I'm thank- thankful to God he did. My dad was a militant atheist growing up. Um, I didn't even know what it wow. meant, but my friend was getting baptized. Hmm. So I asked to go to church, and he was very, very mad and told me, no, I wasn't allowed. I, I didn't wow. even get to stay the night with her anymore on Saturday nights. Anyway, so my dad was militant atheist. His mom was a paranoid schizophrenic, but she was also a pastor who went through seminary. Nice. Anyway. So, long story short, my dad hated church, hated anything to do with it. The only time he ever went was with my brother or for me for, you know, official family purposes. And he prayed after my grandfather died, who everybody nicknamed Preacher. But anyway, uh, after my grandfather died and stuff, a few weeks later, he prayed for our meal before we ate. And I was very offended. And I, I was like, Dad, I, I know you're thinking about granddaddy, but it's not okay for you to pray over a meal. Like, that's not okay. And he just started bawling. And he told really? me I was saved. Wow. And I was like, what? So I was sitting in the living room, Jesse. And I was watching TV. And all of a sudden, just these things I'd heard growing up, I could hear my dad praying for me when I was young. Just all these things hit me at one time. He was like, and then all my sin hit me. And all I've done for two weeks is cry. That's why I haven't even wow. called you. Wow. And I was like, you did you. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's These are minions, so it's really just strange. But anyway. All right, well, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you again for this time to be together. I thank you for these glorious truths that your word teaches to us. Bless our time of worship. I pray that I would glorify your name, that you bless our time of communion together. Let me just thank you for your, your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.